0: Hey, everyone. It's Michael Schellenberger for Public. This week, I talk with Gary Tobbs, author of an important new book on diabetes. Gary has been writing a contrarian argument against the mainstream conventional wisdom on a diet for over 20 years. He argues that the high-carb diets that we've been instructed to follow have actually backfired and made Americans fatter, less healthy, and more prone to diabetes. This is a fascinating conversation, not just about this important dietary question, but really about how science goes wrong and how so many people get the evidence backwards for so many decades. I hope you enjoy. Yeah. All right, so tell me, why
1: should we care about diabetes? Okay, uh, simple answer is we have an epidemic of diabetes. The incidence prevalence of this disease has increased over 600% in 60 years from 2 million americans diagnosed to 30 million americans diagnosed in total you include those people who don't yet know they have diabetes one in nine americans is diabetic okay this is a disease that was vanishingly rare in the 19th century Mm. now some of the differences diagnostic criteria and people are getting older and type 2 diabetes the more the common form of the disease the disease that associates with age but basically, a disease that was rare 150 years ago is now so common that you know we got commercials for diabetes therapies on television. I, every time I watch a football or a basketball game, I guess they figure middle-aged men who watch sports are prime mm-hmm. candidates to advertise drugs to. Um it is considered a chronic progressive disease, So even though the drugs available are worse than are excuse me better than ever before. So if you're diagnosed today, you your expectation of health and life is better than ever before. The expectation is also that this disease will only get worse, that you will need more drugs or newer drugs or higher doses. So one way to think about that is that drugs don't make people healthy. They make them less unhealthy and they delay their progression into other chronic disorders that are associated with it. And finally, the cost is extraordinary. So direct medical cost for diabetes and its complications is $300 billion a year. So it's almost three quarters of a billion dollars a day. Mm. Uh, cost to patients or to insurers is twelve to $16,000 per year. And this is an unsustainable burden on the healthcare system. So, the question I ask going into this book is a simple one. Like, first of all, if you have an out of control epidemic, one that's only getting worse where the numbers are going up every year, somebody should be asking the question whether we really understand the cause and do we really understand the disease. So, imagine. You know, HIV identified in the 1980s. You assume that it's caused the the, the uh, that the AIDS is caused by the HIV virus. You create drugs that fight the virus, and the numbers just keep getting bigger, and the burden of the disease keep getting bigger. At some point, the healthcare system would stop and say, "Wait, maybe we got the wrong agent here. Maybe it's mm-hmm. not the HIV virus. Maybe it's something we don't know entirely, because everything we're doing is failing." um you know we identify we have a had a lung cancer epidemic and we identified cigarettes as the cause and imagine you f- go forward 50 years later and lung cancer has just gotten worse and worse while smoking is coming down you would have investigations to see what we screwed up in this case nobody does anything we could we could explain why but and we should but nothing happens the situation just keeps getting worse worldwide the prevalence of diabetes has increased 400% well fourfold mm. since 1980 and the 2017 the director of the World Health Organization a woman named Margaret Chan gives a talk in Washington where she refers to the situation worldwide as a slow motion disaster and she gives an estimate for the probability that health organizations like the World Health Organization are going to be able to rein this in, okay, so not, not reverse it, not solve the problem, just curb the increase, and her probability estimate is zero percent. She is predicting with complete certainty that they will fail mm. and that this situation will just get worse. That's why I wrote the book.
0: And your your view is 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 obviously, or maybe not obviously, but it's it's uh, a minority view. You have a counterintuitive view. Anybody who knows your previous books can probably guess where you land on this. But but tell us, tell us, uh, tell the listener, you know, wh- what you think is driving this uh, epidemic of diabetes.
1: Okay, so there are two issues: what's driving it, and what's how to prevent it or what the best therapy is. Um, uh, diabetes associations pay extraordinary lip service to the role of diet in this disease. Okay, so one way to think about it is diabetes. There are two types, type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is the acute form that typically hits adolescents and, and children and is a disorder of insulin deficiency. Insulin's a hormone produced by our pancreas, and if you don't get insulin, these people will die. Um, Type 2 diabetes is a chronic disease It associates with age and weight, and the assumption is that the reason we get type 2 diabetes is because we get fatter. We've had an obesity epidemic, that's very clear, so the idea is obesity causes type 2 diabetes, that explains the epidemic. We get fatter because we eat too much, that's intuitively obvious and therefore there's really nothing we can do about it, so why, have an investigate? why investigate this when it's clear that the problem is people just eat too much, they can't stop themselves from eating too much. Maybe the food industry makes food that's just too damn tasty or ultra-palatable, hyper-palatable. Pick your terminology, and that's the end game. Um, the alternative way to think about this is this is disorder of carbohydrate intolerance. So type 1 and type 2 diabetes, they're basically, they will not, the, the manifestation of the symptoms is a response to the carbohydrate content of the diet. And prior to the discovery of insulin in 1921, the way these diseases were treated was with what they called at the time, animal diet. So it was basically fatty anim- fatty meat, fish, and green leafy vegetables. And you'd boil the vegetables three times to get all the carbs out. You could mm-hmm. control type 2 diabetes with that diet. And you could delay the consequences of type 1 diabetes with that diet. And since the discovery of insulin and this focus on pharmaceuticals, that sort of dietary therapy has been forgotten and how effective it was. So that's something I'm focusing on. Um, when you look at worldwide, so one thing we did in the United States uh, beginning in the 1960s, we identified dietary fat and saturated fat as a cause of heart disease. As you said people who have read my previous books know that I think that was wrong. There was always an alternative hypothesis, which is that the cause of heart disease and the chronic diseases with associate which, it, which associate with it, which are obesity, diabetes, uh, dementia, cancer are caused by the carbohydrate content of the diet, specifically the refining of processing of grain. So take whole grains and turn them into white flour, in effect, and the sugar content of the diet. And sugar uh, use exploded in the 19th century and into the 20th century, and our diets have basically become almost incomprehensibly rich with sugar. So... Conventional thinking, diabetes is caused by obesity. Obesity is caused by eating too much. This alternative hypothesis that I explore in my books is that diabetes is initially caused by the sugar content of the diet. My 2016 book was called The Case Against Sugar, and that's the argument. Um, And if you want to prevent it or fix it, you don't tell people to eat less. You have to tell them to, unfortunately, avoid these carbohydrate-rich foods and sweets, and we've been telling them the opposite since, in effect, the 1960s. And is that? it seems like one, from
0: your previous books and also from uh, Nina Takeholz, who's your friend and also wrote a, a, a book that I think uh, is very aligned with your thinking, there's sort of a sense in which this was driven by bad science, but it sounds like in the case of diabetes, you're—correct me if I'm wrong—you're also saying this was driven by uh, medical intervention that then uh, enabled uh, a bad diet. Yes. Is that both, correct, both or how those. do you how would you describe the the role of kind of bad science and and okay. bad?
1: So let's talk about. Like, for instance, first, my role in this, When once you bring up bad... So, my second book was called Bad Science. It was not about nutrition. It was about the great scientific fiasco of the uh, late 1980s called Cold Fusion.
0: Mm. still and, around, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Cold Fusion is yeah. still around. It will never go away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, my expertise, I had a physics background. I went into... Journalism. I wanted to be an investigative reporter. I got a job as a science journalist. Instead, it turned out that there's plenty of bad science in the world. And there's, there is uh, plenty of opportunities for journalists who are willing to have the hubris or the arrogance to think that they can question the work of, of quote, academic scientists. Um, I was very well trained, in my first in my first book was called Nobel Dreams. It was a, a uh, investigation. Well, I was embedded with these physicists at the big physics laboratory outside Geneva, Switzerland, for nine months, while they realized that what they thought was a great discovery was actually a. Can I use scatological language?
0: Oh, yeah, sure. This is uh, not a family, yeah. not okay. family So safe.
1: They, they thought they had made this great discovery. I had gone to uh, basically write a book about this great discovery, and then instead I lived with them as they realized how they had fucked up. Wow. And it was an education in how easy it is to get the wrong answer in science and how hard it is to do it right. And along the way, because ahead of the, the collaboration was... F- <laughs> soundly disliked throughout the physics community some of the most brilliant physicists in the world were more than willing to sit down with me and explain not only how he had fucked up this time but Mm. how he had fucked up in the past Mm. and my second book called fusion before
0: you go on you have to say how how did he how how did he fuck up exactly
1: well it's complicated but the gist of it is you could think of a scientific discovery or i think of a lot of science as signal to noise issues. So, you know, when you're um, scanning on the old-fashioned radios and you twist the dial and you get static, 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 and then you get a signal, which is the radio station. Physics was very similar like that. You're running an experiment. You're colliding particles together. You're looking at the energy released in the particles. You have some theory about what particles are going to be released in these collisions and what energy and you scan through it and at some point you see what you think is a signal, which is far more particles uh, uh, emitted from these collisions than your conventional thinking predicts Mm -hmm. but you have to understand your conventional thinking and your conventional thinking is the background that's the uh, static and you have to understand how your equipment can fool you. Mm -hmm. So you have to know, and this is actually crucial to a lot of the nutrition science I write about, if you know that nothing is happening, will the equipment you have detect nothing? It's like getting on a scale, if you don't stand on your scale, will your scale show zero? Or will it show two pounds? Because if it shows two pounds or three pounds, it's calibrated incorrectly. Once you get on it, that two, three pounds might mean a 10 or 20 pound difference. Mm. Once, you know, for your own weight, you have no way to know. So you have to be able to know what your equipment reads when it should be reading zero. Your equipment should be showing zero. That's sort of the essence of doing good science or part of the essence of doing good science. And bad scientists are so excited by the possibility that they've discovered something that they ignore their background or they they don't go through the effort to see that all the ways that less mundane explanations could explain what they think they're seeing and this is what happens in nutrition mm. it's common to all this
0: confirmation confirmation bias is what you're saying
1: it's not just confirmation bias which is part of it and so the scientific method was sort of inaugurated in 1620 by Francis Bacon in a book called Novum Organum*, and he said, look, confirmation problem, like we all do it. He didn't use, I mean, he didn't use the term confirmation bias, but he said humans pay attention to the data that agrees with their preconceptions, and they ignore the data that doesn't. So right. that's part of it. Okay. But when you get the data that agrees with it you have to understand why you're seeing it what's the cause of it is it because you've discovered something new or is it because your equipment is misfiring Mm -hmm. and if you don't understand what makes your equipment misfire you can never claim to discover something new so when usually when journalists or the government investigate science or investigating fraud fraud is you fake your signal You got some, you know, gel photo in your biology lab and you fake it so it says what it's supposed to say if you've confirmed your beliefs and then you could publish the paper and you hope nobody catches you. So fraud is faking the signal. Typical bad science is ignoring the background. Mm -hmm. Okay, It's not bothering to do the rigorous, meticulous, mind-numbing work to find out whether what you think you're seeing is something interesting, or something mundane, mm. whether it's caused by you know the universe at large, or whether it's caused because your equipment is misfiring. Right, That was a problem in cold fusion. Mm. I mean, it's a problem everywhere. So my first two books, I was basically mentored by some of, like I said, the greatest experimental scientists in the world in how to think about this. Um, I'd like to think I had some natural gift to begin with, but a lot of people would disagree with me. Um, the was when I finished the second book, Cold Fusion. That's when I moved into public health because actually friends in the physics community. So the Cold Fusion mm. book was called Bad Science. Mm. Um, friends in the physics community said if you're interested in bad science you should look at this stuff in public health that's terrible okay I mean you've learned about how bad the public health research is yeah so what one thing that you need for good science is you get a hypothesis you know we all know science is hypothesis and test you get a hypothesis and you do the test to see if your hypothesis is correct and then You do the test again and again, and if it disproves your hypothesis, you still might want to do the test again because maybe you did the test incorrectly, and ideally you get what's called independent replication where somebody else does the test who has no vested interest in your result being right, and if they find what you find, then you can begin to believe it, Mm. although you both might have screwed up in the same way because science is very complicated and very hard to do. in public health issues like climate change and nutrition you can't really do the tests in climate change we only have one planet so you could do very you could do tests in laboratories and you could model climate change on a computer but on some level you're always guessing that what you're modeling or what you're doing in the laboratory actually relates to what's happening in the real world and you're trying to test whether or not it relates but you never know whether or not it really does because that's just the nature of the universe universe doesn't give you that information um in nutrition when you're studying deficiency diseases say you don't have enough vitamin b in your diet so you get berry berry or pellagra or something you know that's a process that might take three months to play out so we could give somebody who has pellagra vitamin b supplements and see if it gets better and if it does, we could assume that this is a, you know, a, um, a deficiency disorder. Uh, when we're studying issues like heart disease, diabetes, obesity, these are chronic diseases that take decades to manifest themselves. You know, if you're 40 years old and you're 50 pounds overweight, you might as well put on the 50 extra pounds at the rate of like, say, two pounds a year since you were well three pounds a year since you were 25 okay so that's a very slow accretion of fat it's a very slow process and if you want to test a hypothesis say for the cause of obesity or the cause of heart disease in humans it takes 10-20 years if you want to test a therapy that prevents heart disease. You've got to get enough people that you can predict will get heart disease over, say, a decade such that you can randomize them into two groups. Give one of them your pill and one of them a placebo and then run them forward and see if the people who get the placebo actually have more heart disease or not. They're ludicrously expensive experiments. And when it's about diet, it's much harder to do because you can give somebody a pill or a placebo and they're likely to take it. But if you tell somebody you've got to change your diet dramatically, I want you 10,000 people to eat this way and you 10,000 people to eat that way. Um, there are some of them are going to listen to you, but most of them are going to start off listening to you. And then for a whole bevy of reasons that you can't understand, they're going to stop listening and mm-hmm. start eating the way they're not supposed to eat in your trial that might cost 50 or 100 million dollars becomes just another failed experiment. Mm. So on one level, like science works when you can do this hypothesis and test, and you can do the tests relatively cheaply, and you can do them frequently, so you can, they're quick to do. So you do—you get your hypothesis, you test it, you test it again, you find out the hypothesis doesn't seem to be right, you do another test, and another test, and maybe at the end of a few years you've done 20 tests and you've got a reasonable idea of what's going on in the world. In nutrition, the test costs $10, $20, 50000000 million. It takes a decade. And if you screw it up, and I would bet most experiments in science end up screwed up, like you do the experiment to learn out what you should have done, kind of like you write a book to learn what book you should have written, <laughs> um, you can't go back. You can't go to like the National Institutes of Health or the Congress, whoever gave, whoever gave you the money and said, oh. Now that we've spent $50 million, um, we think we should have done the experiment this way because the way we did it didn't work. Right. Now, this problem exists for on, on
0: for everybody, you know, if people that are advocates of a high-carb diet, a low-carb diet. Oh. So what what ultimately gives you confidence that that the high-carb diet is, you know, the major driver of um, diabetes and obesity Um and by the way, I think you were going to say this, but my understanding of your view is that you think that basically diabetes causes obesity rather yeah. than obesity causing diabetes, That's... which which kind of totally blew my mind when I started thinking about that. But anyway, I guess I'm asking two questions, so answer them in whichever order you want.
1: Okay. Um, well, so for instance, this book I wrote, The Case Against Sugar, which discussed the evidence for... This belief that sugar is sort of the prime sugar being, you know, the, the sweet stuff. And um, which carbs
0: metabolize into, right? All carbs metabolize well, no. into sugar. So no. That's
1: one of the common statements people like to make, but it's not really. So when you eat starches or grains, uh, potatoes, um, you know, bread, the, the, the starches are these long chains of carbohydrates that break down in your gut and get into your bloodstream. is glucose. So all these carbohydrates that have OSE is the last three letters, so lactose, galactose, glucose, fructose, are all carbohydrates of different forms. Um, so blood sugar, blood glucose, that's the equivalent. So the stuff that they're measuring that you can't control in diabetes, your blood glucose is high, that's a carbohydrate. Sugar, the stuff... You know, the, primary sweetener in our diet. High fructose corn syrup came in in the late uh, 1970s, and uh, Michael Pollan, a local Berkeley resident, blamed the obesity and diabetes epidemic on high fructose corn syrup. Um, Sugar is a molecule of glucose bonded to a molecule of fructose. Fructose is the sweetest of the carbohydrates, it's what makes sugar sweet. Glucose, when we consume it, is metabolized and goes into our bloodstream. It raises blood sugar, which is blood glucose, and it's basically metabolized by every cell in our body. Fructose goes straight to the liver. Mm. Actually, most of it is metabolized in the intestine. Then it gets to the liver. Um, and the, the argument, the case against sugar, in effect, is our liver's never evolved to see the doses of fructose that they get today at the flux of fructose they get today from uh, everything from the orange juice you drink in the morning to the sodas and sweets consumed throughout the day um this is completely new phenomena and there's some very good biochemistry that was done in the 60s and 70s demonstrating how fructose could cause this condition called insulin resistance Mm. which is the fundamental Uh, disorder in type 2 diabetes the I got distracted from what that original question was well it was it was sort of does oh so why the high carb so anyway the point is
0: there's also why diabetes diabetes causes obesity rather than obesity
1: diabetes. well we're still getting back to why considering how bad the science is right how can I make a claim? How can I write a book against case against sugar? And the argument I said, I give the physiology, I give the history. So what we've been trying to do in the United States since the 1950s was answer the question, why do people in the United States have such relatively high rates of heart disease? That led to the answer that they eat saturated fat rich diets and saturated fat raises the level of LDL, the bad cholesterol in your blood, and that causes atherosclerosis and that causes heart disease and we should all eat low fat or low saturated fat diets. And when you limit the amount of fat you're eating, you tend to replace those calories with carbohydrates because if you replace them with protein, protein comes with fat attached most often so a low-fat diet is a high-carb diet and that's the advice we've been getting in the united states it gets modulated by types of fat and we should eat olive oil and all that um while that was happening there was a different hypothesis this is getting all back to the cause of diabetes that hypothesis was a british hypothesis the dietary fat one was an american hypothesis so the british happened to have physicians colonial and government physicians working in hospitals throughout the British Empire, which extended throughout the world. And these doctors were seeing a very common phenomenon everywhere, which is the rise of chronic diseases with the westernization of the diets mm. of the populations they were seeing. Right. So you would have some traditional population. It could be the Inuit living near the Arctic Circle, or uh, pastoral populations like the Maasai in Kenya, or Siberian reindeer herders, or it could be agrarian populations, native, everywhere you look throughout the world, these populations, for the most part, didn't have the chronic diseases that kill us. Obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer. They also don't have Western doctors to diagnose them. So that's mm. an issue that has to be taken into account. Right. But once their diets became westernized, once you know these British physicians and, and traders and missionaries moved into the area and started trading, you know Western foods for whatever they wanted from the natives these people started manifesting the same chronic diseases that kill us. And the first foods that were inevitably traded that constituted the Westernization of their diet, were white flour and sugar. These were the foods that could be shipped around the world safely, that wouldn't spoil, that wouldn't be eaten by rats because they have no nutrients. Mm-hmm. So you had this British hypothesis that you basically add sugar and white flour to any, any baseline diet doesn't matter if it's 80% fat like the Inuit or the some agrarian pop, 20% fat like the uh, agrarian population living in the Himalayas, give them sugar and white flour and wait a 20 years and you'll have an obesity and diabetes epidemic. And then that will make it there. Once the women in the population start suffering from obesity and diabetes, they will pass on an increased propensity to their children. Mm-hmm. While the kids are in the womb, it's a uh, very well-understood phenomena called fetal programming. Mm. So that was the argument I made in the sugar book. Um, mm. I said I can't prove it because the studies stink. We don't have the evidence to get a conviction, but I have the evidence to get an indictment. Okay. <laughs> so what I'm going to give you in the book is the evidence mm-hmm. for the indictment. I'm going to acknowledge that if I was on the jury, I wouldn't be able to convict.
0: Right. But so you have a lot of circumstantial evidence.
1: Uh, yeah. You could call it so what, so what you would need, what would be a smoking gun would be a clinical trial. That let's go to our, you know, we know what it takes. So, 10,000 people for 10 years, 5,000 are going to get a sugar rich diet, and 5,000 are going to be told to avoid sugar like the plague. Okay? And the funny thing is, let's say that study would cost $20 million, the government would not fund such a study because everyone would say to you, well, of course, the people who avoid sugar are going to be healthier.
0: We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.